Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Merini. I'm your host, Thanos Davelis. About a week ago, Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to Turkey, where he met with Turkish President Erdogan. Diplomatic sources said Blinken arrived bearing potential gifts to entice Turkey to wrap up the issue of Sweden's NATO membership. These included everything from new ways to provide F-16s to Turkey to a White House visit for Turkish President Erdogan. Michael Rubin, the Director of Policy Analysis at the Middle East Forum, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a former Pentagon official, joins me to break down why rewarding Erdogan for actions that responsible governments do without enticement only encourages blackmail. Michael, great having you back on The Greek Current. Hey, thanks for having me, Thanos. Michael, it's been just over a week since Secretary Blinken's visit to Ankara. Given what we've seen since, particularly on Sweden's NATO bid, are you concerned Washington is relying on hope as a strategy here when it comes to Erdogan? I'm not sure whether I would say it's hope, Thanos. I'd say it's more desperation. We keep taking Erdogan at his word, and what my diplomatic sources tell me is that Tony Blinken, deep down, whatever concerns he has about Erdogan, actually thinks that this time around, Erdogan is acting in better faith, that he got Erdogan to promise that Erdogan would take the Sweden issue seriously. The problem is, Erdogan always wants more, and he kind of senses that, especially as we come to an election, Tony Blinken is desperate for some sort of success. And so, from Erdogan's conception, this just means he can raise the price, and he, he can keep stringing us along, and I'm not sure whether he's even sincere in the first place. A piece of advice, Michael, that many may be familiar with, especially those who play poker, is to play the man and not the odds. Is the Biden administration you know, misreading Erdogan, the man on the other end of the negotiating table, then? I think they're absolutely misreading Erdogan. Look, we've played this game before, not only with regard to Sweden, where we've had any numbers of headlines saying that we finally had the breakthrough, which actually then disappears within a matter of weeks. I mean, it's amazing the spin doctors count on our collective amnesia to forget that, that they've said, said all this before. But look, you know that I was in the Bush administration, and there was back-channel agreements, whatever one thinks of the Iraq war, to allow the 4th Infantry Division to go in through Turkey. Erdogan's advisors said, absolutely no problem. And I, I think it was Junaid Zapsu who gave the assurance to Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz at the time, and to Dick Armitage, who was the Deputy Secretary of State. And then Erdogan threw it to his National Assembly, and the National Assembly actually had a slight majority saying yes, but not a quorum. Now, Erdogan, I mean, the U.S. complained and basically said, what the heck, you didn't whip this. How come you didn't arrange this to move forward? And Erdogan just shrugged his shoulders and said, well, we Turks were a democracy. He's going to play that game again. And the ironic thing about that 2003 episode is it repeated a 1991 episode with Torgat Ozil ahead of Operation Desert Storm. And in that case, Torgat Ozil, when the parliament was sort of wishy-washy and only had a slight majority, had ruled differently as to how to count the quorum to allow it to go forward. So what we have is Erdogan with his own plausible deniability, Erdogan believing that he can use this issue to falsely suggest that Turkey is a democracy, whether the United States likes it or not, and at the same time, deny Sweden membership. For Erdogan, it's, I mean, it's a, um, what would you call it? It's a triple play. Diplomatic sources told you, Michael, that some things that seem to be in play in order to get Turkey to move on Sweden are offers when it comes to the F-16s and even a White House visit for Erdogan. 
You've described this offer as bizarre. Can you get into that for us? Why do you think that's the case? Well, both offers are bizarre. The F-16 is the zombie issue that won't go away. I mean, look, ask any analyst, even those who are kind of sympathetic to Erdogan. No one believes that Erdogan is going to use the F-16s in defense of NATO interests against Russia. And so if we're giving F-16s to basically pulverize Syrian Kurds, which has been going on in the background while the world's been paying attention to the Israel-Hamas war, if it's going to use these F-16s to harass Armenia or to harass Greece, then why the heck are we giving them the F-16s? But the other issue, the White House meeting, is even more bizarre. I mean, the United States doesn't really have this mindset, doesn't understand Erdogan's mindset. I mean, we like to think of ourselves as so sophisticated, but we project our own values and our own sense of diplomacy onto our adversaries. We don't understand that from Turkey's standpoint, from Erdogan's standpoint, from the entire Middle East. You put Erdogan in the White House as the most vocal supporter for Hamas, as someone who has forced the United States to their knees and really dragged out this negotiation, you're handing him a victory. If you bring Erdogan to the White House after 2017, when his bodyguards on his orders attacked peaceful protesters in Sheridan Circle, you're basically blessing this transnational repression. All of this Erdogan is astutely aware of, and this is why he wants the meeting so desperately. Why Tony Blinken doesn't understand this? Why Jake Sullivan doesn't understand this? Why Joe Biden? They say the adults are back in charge, but I've never seen a team so provincial and so impervious to understanding the way the rest of the world thinks. You brought up the 2017 attack at Sheridan Circle in D.C. The perpetrators of this attack have largely evaded justice. Michael, is this something that you think should be higher on Washington's list of priorities, or at least should be addressed each time there's a meeting between, you know, a Secretary of State and a Turkish official? Yes and yes. First of all, there's no greater purpose to the United States national security apparatus in the United States government than to protect American citizens. This is especially true when American citizens are being attacked on their own soil in the heart of the nation's capital. We can't forget that. Now, the State Department may like to, I mean, wring its hands and perhaps whisper that, oh, this is complicated, it's issues of sovereign immunity. I'm sorry, but the courts have ruled that in this case, it's not an issue of sovereign immunity. The bodyguards that attacked the protesters did not have that privilege. And if the State Department, out of its fealty for Erdogan, out of its desire to just make problems go away, decides to set a precedent here, what they're basically doing is signaling to every tin pot dictator from Turkey to Tehran to North Korea to wherever, that they can even commit murder in the capital of the United States, that there's no limit to sovereign immunity. It's important to stand up for international law in the heart of Washington, D.C. That's, again, why I don't understand why the State Department and especially Secretary Blinken aren't seeing the forest through the trees. Michael, the last time we spoke on this podcast, we were analyzing Henry Kissinger's legacy, and you described his policies, particularly in the Eastern Mediterranean, as the epitome of short-termism. Is Blinken now running the same risk here with what seems to be a whatever-it-takes policy with Turkey in order to get Sweden across this finish line? I think he absolutely is. I mean, and this is the problem in general across administrations with American diplomacy, that too often we are so busy counting the trees, we forget the forest. 
The forest is NATO's strength, defense of democracy, defense against what Russia represents today. The problem is that Sweden, by um, sort of caving in to all these Turkish demands, we're actually weakening NATO. We're encouraging other people to play these games with NATO. We're going to see the same thing, I mean, with Hungary. We've already seen diplomatically similar issues with regard to Serbia in other contexts. We don't want to basically show that the squeaky wheel is always going to get the grease. That's number one. The second issue is, aside from the symbolism of giving this administration a success, and I wish, look, for all their efforts, I wish they did have the success, and they could achieve this at a lower cost, but we don't need Sweden in NATO. It's not crucial. We can have Sweden train with NATO. We can have it operate in conjunction with NATO. We can basically have it operate in NATO for all intents and purposes and just not be a NATO member. And then we don't have to give Turkey anything. Frankly, the best way to strengthen NATO at this point would be to rebuff Erdogan. And if we're not willing to sanction him, we treat him like a pariah. We put egg on his face and then symbolically, instead of standing up before the world saying, look how strong I am, he's going to stand up in front of the world and everyone else is going to look and say, look what an idiot that guy is. Michael, it's always great chatting with you. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. In other news, the Greek government has announced plans to sell part of its stake in Athens airport through an initial public offering, as the country enjoys a boom in tourism and the privatization of state assets is expected to gather pace this year. The Financial Times reports that Athens International Airport on Monday outlined plans for a listing on the Athens Stock Exchange in February, with the Greek state planning to sell a 30% stake in the country's largest airport, raising about 800 million euros. The airport sale is expected to boost the Athens stock market and signal the country's return to normality after its decade-long debt crisis. Finally, irregular border crossings into the EU reached an eight-year high in 2023, the EU's Border and Coast Guard Agency said. According to preliminary calculations by Frontex, approximately 380,000 people irregularly entered into the EU last year, the highest level since 2016. The 2023 figure constituted a 17% increase compared to 2022. The central Mediterranean region was the most active migratory route into the EU, accounting for 41% of crossings, followed by the Western Balkans at 26% and the Eastern Mediterranean at 16%. Syrians accounted for over 100,000 irregular crossings. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.